Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that the invitation to enjoy you at Christmas doesn't come to the select few or the best and the brightest or the ones who performed the best over the course of this past year. But for all of us who are both faithful and unfaithful, worthy and unworthy, Father, broken, hurting, confused, your invitation is simply to come. And so, Father, thank you for coming to us and giving us this incredible opportunity to know you and to experience your love at Christmas. And for all of us here today, Father, would you help us to understand, but even more importantly, to experience that love even more today. We love you, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Amanda and Ginny and William and Sandy and team. It's good to have you here. There you go. Thank you, guys. Okay. Looks good. Thank you. Appreciate it. Uh, Merry Christmas. It is good to have you here today. Uh, Listen, it is our last Sunday before Christmas. We have uh, lit the final candle before the Christ candle. Uh, And so I do hope that you'll be coming to join us for our Christmas celebrations. We've got a lot that will be happening. Uh, This coming Saturday, uh, we'll be having Christmas Eve services, three different services for you to come to, 3, 4.30, and 6. Traditionally, both the 3 and the 4.30 are pretty packed. And so if you want a seat of your choice and not the one that we will give you, uh, you should probably show up early, right? Uh, bring friends, but you say, hey, I want to be there. These uh, services are about 45 minutes long. Uh, we will have uh, communion. There will be candles uh, at the end. It's a beautiful service for the whole family. We'll all be in here uh, together. Six o'clock is actually my favorite service. Uh, it's usually not the most packed, and I still don't understand why. It's awesome. It's dark, uh, which makes it better for candles and everything. Uh, but we're going to be here for all three, three, four, thirty, and six o'clock. Come celebrate with your family uh, as we worship the Lord. And then this only happens once every six, seven years, uh, Christmas Day, we'll be having one service instead of our normal two Sunday services. We'll do one service, 10 a.m., all of us in here, family style. Uh, there'll be no child care. We'll all just kind of be in here together, a little bit of a shorter service. And I, yes, I know it's Christmas morning, but let's be honest, your kids will open up for six hours anyway. All right. So why not get together, right? You've already eaten. Come celebrate together. It'll be great. Come in your PJs. All right. No dress code, right? Just come enjoy. We're going to have a great morning together, but 10 a.m. One service on Christmas day. It's going to be great. Uh, And then the following Sunday is New Year's. That will also be a Sunday. Same thing. One service, 10 a.m. You do not want to miss this. Uh, One of our elders, Tom Cash, will be preaching again. He's done this the past few years. He's already told me what he's preaching on and you do not want to miss it. Uh, This is just an unbelievably unique topic. Uh, and you're going to want to be here 10 a.m. New Year's Day. Uh, we'll all be kicking off the new year uh, with worship. And so I'll be excited to see you guys here and to be able to worship together and ring in a new year as well. Uh, but grab your Bibles, if you will. Let's go to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4 verse 7 is where we're going to be today. Hopefully you've got a copy of God's Word, if not maybe an app uh, that you can turn to. 1 John chapter 4 verse 7 is where we're going to be today. As we're kind of rounding out this Christmas series on the heart of Christmas. What is it that we're supposed to be feeling and experiencing as we go through the Christmas season? And we started off looking at the hope of Christmas. That Christmas is a time not simply for looking back, but also for looking forward in hope that Christ is coming again. Advent is that seasonal reminder. Then we looked at the peace that God gives us. 
We have a settled peace between us and the Lord. And then last week we looked at joy. There's this incredible joy that God gives us, a grounded, deep joy that's built on the good news that Jesus Christ has come. But this week, uh, we're going to be looking at the love of Christmas. How is it that we can be experiencing the love that God has for us during the Christmas season? And look, this is something I've been thinking about uh, as I get older. Uh, The older that you get, Christmas changes. Uh, We have a different experience of Christmas at different stages of our life. So you might be a child of different ages. You might be a young adult and single and kind of on your own. Uh, You might be a a young married couple uh, and say, hey, Adam, we we just got married. We're experiencing this as a married couple for the first time. You might just have your first child. You might have many children and then there's all of their ages. As you go through that, you might be a grandparent or you might even be a great grandparent. And at all of those stages, Christmas feels different. Uh, And for me, as I get older, and I'm now the parent uh, of a young child, uh, I I recognize now as I'm beginning to put on Christmas for my child and, and you're doing different things, I'm beginning to realize just how much people did for me in all of Christmas's past. Of just how much my parents did, or grandparents did, or other friends did, or churches did. Just how much people went through in decorating things, and setting things up, and and upholding traditions, and just kind of making it such a special occasion. These are things I really just kind of took for granted before I inhabited those roles. And quite honestly, it's just made me thankful. I recognize that I look back, I think I know I have been loved, but now I realize I was even more loved than I was aware of at the time. People loved me even more than I knew. And the more I think about that, the more thankful I am because there was actually more love than I was even aware of. And look, I don't know about your uh, family gatherings. I don't know what your history is or or your background. You say, Adam, that was not my experience. And, and, And I don't know what that was like for you, but I can confidently tell you this. When it comes to Christmas, you can know that you are more loved than you could possibly ever fully understand. No matter who you are or where you are or what your history has been like, you are more loved than you can possibly understand. And Christmas is this annual reminder of that. And so we're going to look at that in not a traditional Christmas passage. It doesn't come out of one of the narratives, the Christmas narratives, but I think you'll see why it's appropriate for today. The letter of 1 John, chapter 4, starting in verse 7. So not the Gospel of John, but the letter of 1 John, chapter 4, verse 7. Listen to what John tells us. It says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. In typical Johannian fashion, he packs a lot in just a few verses. We're just reading three, four verses today, but there is a lot right here in this text. 
We learn a couple things right off the bat. First off, we get one of the most famous lines in all of scripture where John tells us that God is love. If you're wanting to know where that came from, it comes right here in John chapter four. God is love. This is one of the most foundational characteristics of God himself. Now, he will say this about other attributes as well. Earlier in the letter, he says, God is light. All right, so there's other attributes, but this really is one of those backbone core characteristics of God. You cannot understand him if you do not understand that he is a God of love. And what's even better, that love is directed at us. Twice in the passage, we are referred to as God's beloved. Isn't that great? You are God's beloved. Uh, earlier this year, uh, I went on sabbatical and one of the, the speakers who came in uh, to preach was Isaac Adams. Uh, he preaches at Iron City Church uh, over in Southside. And one of the things he does when he preaches is he always calls his people beloved. That's what he always calls the congregation, beloved. And I like that because that is who we are. We are the beloved of God. We are the recipients of this God who is love. He pours that love out on us. That is an unbelievable truth that ought to change our reality. But what is this love? What are we talking about when we mean love? Because just like Amanda alluded to earlier, uh, you can talk about love in lots of different ways. You can say it in lots of different ways. Uh, The word here that you see is the word agape. It's going to show up 13 times in four verses. So clearly love is the theme of these verses. He just keeps saying it over and over and over and over. Love, love, love. But it's all the same Greek word. It's this Greek word agape. Now there's multiple Greek words for love. uh, And so he is choosing this one specifically. He's repeating it specifically. Agape uh, is a self-giving love. It's a selfless love. It is focused on the recipient, not on receiving anything in return. This is the kind of love that God has for us. It is a, a giving love, an overflowing love that is, that is focused on other and not focused on the self. It is active. Uh, this is the kind of love, is a, a love that's a choice. Uh, it's, it's a commitment. It's deep. It's consistent. This is the kind of love that God gives to us. This is in contrast to a different word uh, for love uh, called eros. Uh, and that's where you would get erotic love or just love between uh, like spouses. You would say, say, all right, this is a, this is a love that's kind of like more based on like physical attraction. Uh, and, and that's a kind of love as well. But, but that love honestly is a little bit more selfish. You, you get something back from that. There, there's a, there's a reciprocity to it, uh, but that you don't get with agape. Agape is a giving love. It's a love where God says, hey, regardless of what you do, I'm going to give this to you. This is God's agape love for us. But you see a deeper definition in verses 9 and 10. And so let's look at those real quick. In verses 9 and 10, he says this. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So look at verse nine. He says, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us. All right. So he says, look, I'm going to show you my love. 
I'm going to make it plain. That word manifest means to, to make it real, to make it tangible. He, he's going to show it to you in real time. This isn't just a, a hidden feeling. He says, no, I'm going to prove this to you in the real world. It is made manifest. All right. And then he says, in this is love. Well, what is this? This? Well, he actually says it twice and he gives you the answer. God sent his son. How does God manifest his agape love for us? He sends his son. Do you see Christmas? Christmas is the ultimate love letter from God to us. He says, I love you so much. I'm going to send my son to you. I'm literally going to to send my very heart. I'm going to send myself. I'm going to send my love to you in the flesh, in the real world to come to you. I'm going to send myself to you. And then it gets even greater than that. In verse 10, he says, he's going to be the propitiation for our sins. Big word. But the word propitiation means he's going to be the stand in. He's going to be the one to take all of our punishment. All of the wrath that we deserve, all of the judgment that we deserve, all of the punishment that we deserve, Jesus is going to say, no, you step out of the way and I'm going to take all of that for you. I'm going to stand in for you. I'm going to take all of that on your behalf. He becomes the propitiation for our sins. So how does God show us this agape love? He says, I'm going to come to you on purpose and I'm not coming just to be near you or even to be with you. I'm coming to save you from your sins. I'm coming to save you from yourself. I'm literally coming to give my life so that you could live. This is the overwhelming, incredible, that reckless love of God who says, I come to give everything for you. This is how God loves you. And so the question is, is is that how you think about God's love? When you hear the phrase, God loves us, most of us are willing to agree with that. In fact, that's one of the least controversial things in Scripture, There's a lot of controversial things in scripture that royal our culture, but this is one of the least controversial. Even people who might be far away from God or don't even want to believe in God will be willing to say, hey, I could get on board with that. God loves us, but what kind of love are we talking about? Because we think of love in lots of different ways. Uh, Last week, if you were here, we talked about the difference between joy and happiness. They're linked, and in some ways you can't fully separate them, uh, but they're different. Joy is is bedrock. It's deep. It's built on something solid and real. The good news that Jesus has come, whereas happiness is just kind of like the frothy, uh, kind of just the the feelings on top of that. Uh, Joy leads to a lot of that happiness, but whether the happiness is there or not, you can have a deep joy. Well, love is in many ways the same thing. There's the deep bedrock of love, but that produces these incredible feelings that come with love. Those things are linked, but they're also a little bit different. It's the difference between loving somebody and being in love with somebody. If you're married, you probably understand that, right? If you've ever ever fallen in love with somebody, says, man, I have fallen in love. You know that that is an incredible experience, right? I mean, it is amazing. It's overwhelming. This person just kind of takes over your world. You can't stop thinking about them. You're just overjoyed to be in their presence. I mean, everything they say is amazing. Everything they do is incredible. I mean, it is awesome. Being in love is an incredible feeling. But ask any married couple, any long married couple, and they will tell you that there's a difference between loving somebody truly and being in love with somebody. 
Because the longer you stay married, here's what you'll find out. Uh, that, that feeling of being in love, it wanes over time. You're going to have days as a married couple where you feel deeply connected to your spouse, where you, you can't imagine being with anybody else. I mean, they are incredible. This is your heart. And then there are other days where you're thinking to yourself, who is this person in my bed? Who are you? I don't think I know you at all. This is the same person. And that might be Monday and Tuesday, right? You're like, how can that be? Well, that's kind of what love is, right? There's the feelings and the stuff on top. And then there's the reality of love underneath. Being in love is kind of like, um, it's kind of like the fizz from a Coke, right? Um, uh, look, it, it, many of y'all, if y'all know me, my drug of choice is Coke Zero. All right. I drink a lot of it, probably way too much, right? I guess I got an amen, finally. All right, so. But look, take any Coke, right? You take it and you pour it and then this fizz comes up on top. It's actually pretty cool to watch, right? And you got to do the whole dance of did you put too much in or it's going to overflow and you're going to watch the whole thing. Um, but but it, it's fun, right? To kind of watch that thing fizz up. But the drink is not the fizz, right? It's just there up at the top. And the fizz is temporary, right? It's going to be there for a bit and you get to watch it, but... After a few seconds, it just kind of dies down. It's actually, it tells you, hey, this is a good drink. It hasn't gone flat, uh, but, but it's temporary at best. You can't keep the fizz going, right? I mean, that, that's, that's not a good strategy for actually enjoying this drink, right? The only way to keep the fizz going is to keep popping more cans and to keep pouring it in there. But if you're chasing after the fizz, you're, you're kind of missing the point of what's going on here. Look, look, that's kind of like what, what love is. There are some feelings that come along with that. And there's some great enjoyment that comes along with that. But that, that being in love, that fizzy, effervescent stuff. Okay, that's not the love itself. The, the love is deeper. I remember when I was in seminary, my uh, marriage and family counseling professor said something uh, I'll never forget. He ran a counseling uh, center here in town. Uh, and as a, as a single guy, this just kind of blew my mind. Uh, he said this. He says, the love that brings you together as a couple is not going to be the love that keeps you together. The love that brings you together as a couple is not the love that's going to keep you together. That fizzy, effervescent, falling in love thing. He says that stuff's got a shelf life. It can last anywhere from three months to three years tops. Three months to three years tops. And then there needs to be some actual love underneath it. Like, like real love, love that can weather the ups and downs, love that is there regardless of whether the fizz is there or not, love that can last the test of time, true, actual love for one another. That's the real thing. That's kind of like the drink itself. The fizz is great when it's there, but that's not the point. The point is the actual real love. And look, if all you do in life is go chasing after the fizz in a relationship or in your life, that is a death spiral. It seriously is. And I've watched people tank their entire existence because they say, I don't know. No, no, that's the real thing. The fizz is the real thing. I don't have this. And so if I don't have this, I must be out of love. If I don't have this, I need an affair. I don't have this. I need a divorce. I don't need this. I just got to move on. And you just move from relationship to relationship to relationship to relationship. It's like you're just popping cans trying to keep that fizz alive. You have missed the point of what it actually is. And what's actually going to satisfy you. The goal is not to keep the, that fizz going. The goal is to have the love itself. Don't chase after that stuff. That stuff comes and goes. But you need the reality. 
And so what the Lord is doing here is he says, listen, I want to give you the real thing. I want to give you the deepest love that there can be. This is what's really offered to us. He says, listen, I am coming to you. I'm going to give you my life and I'm going, I'm going to give you my very son. And then I'm going to be willing to die for you in your place. Okay. That's not fizzy, is it? That's not electrifying. That is not even happy for the Lord. Most days, God says this, I know all the stuff that's coming And even so, I love you so much. My agape, my love for you is so deep and so overwhelming. I will come and give everything to bring you back to me. That is a completely different kind of love, is it not? To know all of that ahead of time and still come. I don't know what uh, kind of TV shows you watch, uh, but one of the staples in in TV land uh, is the uh, drama. Right? Or the soap opera. Any soap opera fans still alive? Anybody? Yes? Or do you have some of those? They keep showing them. So like somebody's watching them, right? All right, so we got that. But even if you don't like soap operas, like there's dramas, right? There's always dramas that people watch. This is not my favorite type of show, by the way. Uh, but I mean, this is like, this is like anything on the CW. Uh, this is Dawson's Creek back in the day. Uh, this is, you know, there's all kinds of Shondaland, anything, you know, by Shonda Rhimes or stuff, which P.S., there's a good example there uh, of Grey's Anatomy. Any Grey's Anatomy fans? Right, right, everybody? Yeah, a couple years. Oh, yeah. So here's the thing. I don't watch this show, um, but I found out something shocking today. Anybody want to take a guess on how many seasons of Grey's Anatomy there have been? 19! 19! It's still going on! Grey's Anatomy is older than our entire student ministry. That's a lot of drama! It is a lot of drama! They have packed into 19 years of this story. It follows a woman named Meredith Gray uh, who starts out as kind of like a medical student and like joins this hospital and then she becomes like a doctor and other stuff and, and I don't even know. But it's 19 seasons of drama. And look, because the internet is a treasure trove of useless information, um, I actually found somebody who wrote out some of the things that have happened to Meredith Gray over the show, uh, course of this show. If these are spoilers for you, I'm so sorry. It's been 19 years. It's your own fault. Um, <laughs> just la, 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 if you don't want to know. All right. So here's some of the things that happened to this character on this show. She starts out by inadvertently sleeping with her boss. Not a great start, right? Very inauspicious. There's some bad choices and some bad decision-making already happening, but I guess you had to have drama. Uh, second thing, her appendix bursts, All right, Not fun, but not great, right? You don't want that to happen. Third thing, she drowns. Well, that escalated quickly, right? Um, but don't worry. It apparently doesn't stick. She gets like 13 more seasons after that. Right. So she comes back from the dead, starting to sound like a soap opera. Uh, she has to give her a strange dad, part of her liver. All right. So that's a little bit weird. I don't want to give anybody part of my liver, uh, but certainly not a strange dad. You can see a lot of more drama there. Uh, so you got that. She gets married. Yay. And then he gets shot. No. Um, but don't worry. He lives for now. All right. So you got that. Um, her plane crashes. She survives a plane crash. She's literally starting to sound like a superhero now. All right. So she survives a plane crash. She falls down the stairs while pregnant. Don't worry. Both child and mom make it out. But obviously that's a little bit traumatic. She discovers that she has a secret half sister because naturally she would. Right. Um, her husband dies. See, I told you he wouldn't last long. Uh, she gets attacked by a patient. Okay. She goes to jail for insurance fraud. You see that faulty decision-making coming back to her. All right. So she gets COVID. Not so great. Puts her in a coma even worse. And while she's in a coma, her ex boyfriend dies as well. This all happens to one person. This woman has been traumatized by this show. 
19 seasons of drama and trauma. Now, here's what I want you to think about. I want you to imagine if you and I could get into a time machine and go back to the pilot episode. You and I, to help this woman, are going to get into time machine. And we're going to go back to a pilot. And she's going to be sitting in the job interview for this hospital. And we're going to show up and read her this list and say, if you take this job, all of this is going to happen to you. What do you think she's going to do? If she's smart, which she's proven she's not all that smart. Okay. She should run screaming. She would hear this and go, this place is insane. If I take this job, all of this crazy stuff's going to happen. I am out. And she would run screaming because that's what normal people would do. But these are characters in a TV show, right? Here's what you need to understand about the love of God. God knows the entire list of what's going to happen to him, and he still comes. God knows everything that will happen to him, and he still comes. Here's the two things that God knows. Number one, he knows exactly who we are. He is under no illusions about us. He knows exactly how many times we're going to fail. How do we know that? Because he's got to go to the cross and die for those very sins. That's not just like a catch-all of, I guess this works for everybody. No, no, he's going to die specifically for every sin we commit, which means this. God knows every single time we're going to fail him. Every single time we make him a promise that we will not keep. Every time we're going to say, I'll never do that again. And then we promptly do it. Every time we hurt his children. Every time we hurt ourselves. Every time we are not faithful. God knows every single one of those times and still chooses to come for us. Here's the second thing he knows. He knows everything that's going to happen to him. Before Jesus lays aside his glory, before he leaves unapproachable light where he lives in perfect communion with the father, before he is sent to us, here's what he understands. For the first 30 years of his life, he will live in a poor day laboring family. For the very first years of his life, he's going to have to live as a refugee because people are trying to kill him. When he starts his ministry 30 years later, even his own family won't understand it and seek to stop him. The very people he's coming to save are going to misunderstand his ministry and try to kill him. He will be stabbed in the back by one of his closest friends who's walked with him for years. And after that, he's going to be arrested on false accusations, convicted of crimes he did not commit. He is going to be mocked, tortured, ridiculed, and executed. God knows all of this is coming. And his reaction to it all is, when do we leave? Because that's how much he loves you. That's agape. It's not fizzy. He doesn't get a lot in return. He loves us so much that even though he knows what's coming, even though he knows that we don't offer him all that much, if anything, he says, my love for you is so grand that I will come and give everything to bring you home. That is a love unlike anything you and I have ever experienced. That is a love that is different than anything you can get from the things of this world. For just a couple of moments, I want to kind of delve into that love by, by looking at a different passage. So you can stay here, but let me show you 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Uh, Paul, in one of his most famous chapters, 
expounds on the reality of this love. And so listen to what he says. Here's how he would describe this unbelievable love. He says, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. But as for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I just know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. When you begin to meditate on this passage and recognize that this is the kind of love that God has for us, it ought to deepen our, not just our understanding, but our awe and our gratitude at the incredible grace and love that God gives to us. I don't have time this morning to go through every single part of this passage, but let me just look at a a few of them. First off, it said that love is patient. Think about the amazing patience that God has for us. God doesn't simply just say, wow, this is incredibly fun at all points possible. No, he has to be patient with us. Patient when we're immature. Patient when we won't listen to him. Patient when we run away from him. Patient as we fumble time and time again as we're learning how to grow and walk in him. Patient when we fail. Patient when we choose sin on purpose. For some of us, man, you had to be chased for decades before you surrendered your life to the Lord. For others of you in this room, you're still running. You don't even know why you're here today. You're still running from the Lord. And get this, he's still chasing. That's patience. That's not fun for him. But his unbelievable love says, no, my love is patient and I will continue to patiently chase after you. Secondly, his love is kind. His love is kind. This is a deep word. It kind of gets mistranslated for us today. I think we think nice when we hear kind as if God's love is nice. God's not really nice. Did you know that? He's not. Uh, He's kind. But he's not nice. Uh, This word here for kindness, uh, it has the the attitude of like strength under control. All right, so there's a kindness here. This is very akin to gentleness. All right, there's a strength that's under control. He is kind to us. Have you ever um, ever had a a parent or a teacher uh, or a coach, somebody who was in authority over you? You ever had one of those folks raise their voice at you? It's a little bit shocking, right? Because they don't normally do that. And then every now and then something, they just raise their voice. They're like, ooh, oh, hey, whoa, ooh, ah. It's that reminder of like, man, they could do that at any point. This whole time I'm with them, man, they've got this power that I don't have. It's a reminder of that, that incredible power that they have. And because they're an authority, you're like, whoa, okay, I need, to, I need to take note of that. Can you imagine if God raised his voice at us? What would happen if God raised his voice with us? When God raises his voice, universes melt. That's what happens when God raises his voice. 
And that God who is powerful beyond all cosmos and eternity, that God is being offered to us as an infant at Christmas. Do you see the kindness of God? He's not coming to us with this raised voice. He comes to us in vulnerability and humility. Please don't misunderstand. He is quite still the omnipotent God of the universe. He is quite still in control, but he comes to us in a kindness. All of his strength is under control so we can approach him and experience him. Do you see the love of God? In this kindness that he gives to us at Christmas, his love is patient. His love is kind. Uh, Thirdly, he said this, uh, it does not insist on its own way. Love does not insist on its own way. Now, this is one of those you may go, Adam, I think that that breaks, right? Because God does insist on his own way. I mean, he tells us what to do, right? In fact, he should insist on his own way. He's the only being in all of existence who is always right, who is always good. I think he should insist on his own way, right? Well, he can. And in many ways he should, but it's interesting that he doesn't. He doesn't force us to follow him. This is how you know it's love. And this is how you know that when when we talk about God, God is not just power. More deeply than that, God is love because he's not going to force us to be in a relationship with him. Because if he does, well, then it's not love. God's goal is that we would know him. God's goal is that we would live in him and experience him and walk in him to know him. This is what we were created for in the garden, that we might have a relationship with him. And so even though he probably should insist on his own way, he can insist on his own way. He doesn't. Why? He will not ravish. He can only woo. Because what he is looking for is a relationship. What he's looking for is our hearts. And so he's not going to force us to follow him. He's not going to make us bend the knee to follow him. We actually get a choice in that. This is his love for us. It shows what he's after. He is after a love relationship with us. Fourthly, uh, he is not resentful. God's love is not resentful. Actually, at the NIV translation better here, it says it keeps no record of wrongs. God's love keeps no record of wrongs. I wonder how many grudges are going to get revived during the Christmas season when you have your family gatherings. You ever notice that? People you just don't normally see all year round, you get them all in one room and all the grudge matches, they just kick right back up, right? All the past hurts finally get revived. Hey, remember when you did that terrible thing? Yeah, I'm going to remember that. And you just bring up all these things, grudges, right? Is resentment. These things that get brought up when you put everybody together. Listen, God's got a laundry list of things he could bring up. He says, but I'm not resentful. The Bible says that he throws our sins as far as it is from the east to the west. God cannot technically forget our sins. He is omniscient. He knows everything. Uh, And so he still knows what we have done. But what he's saying is, is like, I don't hold these against you. It's like they don't matter. They they don't even enter the conversation. They, They might as well be forgotten. They're as far as the east is from the west. What does that have to do with our relationship now? He's not resentful. Remember that word propitiation? He's paid for it. I came and paid for all of your sins. I took care of it. There's no need for us to keep reliving your mistakes, reliving the past. It's done. It's paid for. And not just the sins in the past, but your sins in the future. I have paid for this. He's not resentful. 
if any being in the universe had the right to be resentful, it's the Lord. And he says, no, 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 I love you. I gave my life for you. And so I'm not holding this against you. I keep no record of wrongs in me. You can be fully forgiven. And then here's the last one that that is probably the most profound. Look at verse 12. It says this at the very end uh, of the passage. Uh, Go to that second slide if you would. It says, now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. I think when you really get down to it, the thing that we're all looking for is that we want to be fully known. To experience true fullness of love, we need to be fully known. This thing we're all fearful of is that people don't really know us and that therefore they don't really love us. Here's what you can know about God. You are fully known by the Lord. He, in fact, knows us better than we know ourselves. He knows you better than you know you. And knowing everything about you, all the good, all the bad, and everything in between, he knows all of that and says this to you. I love you, and I am going to send my son to make sure you can have a relationship with me. That is agape. That is the overwhelming, never-ending, incredible Agape love of God that he gives to us. When you think about the love of God at Christmas or just the coming of Jesus Christ, have we taken time to receive this? To to recognize that this is not just for the world, it's for for me, that God loves me, that he he has this, this, this desire for me. We keep chasing after all these things of the world, the fizzy things of this world. And the Lord says, I want to give you the real thing. I want to give you myself. And I wonder if you and I would be simply able to receive even more of him this Christmas. Because when you and I begin to live in the love of God, when we receive that love, two things occur. Two results naturally flow from this. The first is this. uh, We're able to live through him. If you're still there in 1 John chapter 4, look at verse 9. In verse 9, it says this. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. That's the purpose. God's not just doing this to say, hey, I can. He's not doing this just to impress us. He says, there's a purpose to me sending the son into the world. And it's this, that you might live through him. That you might have real life in Jesus Christ. This is the only life that is truly life. If you look for life anywhere else in this world, you will be disappointed. God says, this is life itself. It's in me. This is the goal. The goal of Christmas is not simply say, wow, that's incredible. Or, hey, I'll try to be better. No, the goal is to know him, to receive this love, to live in it, to enjoy him and to find true life in him. Which begs the question, are you living in Jesus Christ right now? Are you living in in a relationship with Christ right now? Does this form just the backbone of your life? Are you living in that personal relationship? And if not, what's holding you back from that? Like, you don't have to tell me, but like, you should know for yourself. What's holding you back from living in that relationship? Well, here's the second question. What's distracting you from that? Because the world's great at that. You might say, Adam, I love the Lord. And I promise I'm going to get around to, to really knowing him after I do this and this and this and this and this and this, this. And if I have time and I got to do this, 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 this. And you're, you're so constantly distracted. You don't have time to live in 
this love relationship with the Lord. What's holding you back from that? Because literally God sent his son to manifest his love that you and I might live through him. But here's the second thing. Not only do we love him, we love others. Look at verses 11 and 12. This is beloved. If God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. You see, when you and I live in this love of the Lord, an amazing thing happens. It overflows into other people's lives. Just kind of like that fizz just kind of overflows. If you don't watch it, it's just going to overflow into lives. Okay, listen, that, that true drink, this living water, it literally can overflow out of you into other people's lives. Why? Because I'm full. Instead of desperately trying to get love and life from everywhere else in the world, I find myself full in the Lord. He doesn't just give me what I need. He gives me more. He gives me more than I could ever imagine. I am fully known. I am fully loved. I am fully forgiven. This is a love unlike any other. When you and I live in this love, we naturally then begin to want to share it with others. I have more to spare. I don't need anything from you. Why? I'm getting so much from the Lord. I can just give without the expectation to receive. I can just give without needing to get anything in return. I can give without anxiety of having a lack because I am so overflowing with the love that God has for me. Look, if, if you have trouble loving other people, especially at Christmas, that's a problem. Like, if you just say, I, just, I don't want to do that. I don't love other people. I honestly don't even like other people. I, I, don't, I don't do that. If you have a problem with that, okay, that's, that's a problem. What's the solution? It's not to try to force yourself to like that person. They might be terrible, right? I, I don't know if that's going to work. The, the way you fix it is by going back to the love of God and recognizing that the God who made everything gives you agape. He gives you his himself, his son, and in him, you can have life. When we find our life in him, it is the most natural thing in the world for us to love others like he does. For us to love others and to give to others like he does, that agape so fills us, we begin to have agape for other people. And we begin to love and serve. If you've ever seen somebody who is overwhelmingly generous, overwhelmingly giving, loving, serving, you're typically going to find somebody who has already been filled with the love of God. That they just cannot help but want to give and love and serve those around him. That is the heart of love you can experience as we receive the love of God at Christmas. So do this for me. Bow your heads and close your eyes for a moment. And with heads bowed and eyes closed, we're going to re-sing part of this song from earlier. But maybe as we were singing these songs, uh, the love of God, you, you might think uh, that's great and all. But I'm sure that's for somebody else or somebody more spiritual or somebody who's more deserving. And I hope you see now that that's not true. It's for you. And me too, by the way. And all of us. Not a one of you are excluded. Nobody can hear say it's not for me. God doesn't care. Christmas is the proof. He says, I sent my son for you on purpose because I love you. 
I don't just love you when it feels convenient. I don't just love you even when I feel it. He says, no, it's a consistent, never-ending, never-changing, more than enough love, and it's for you. I wonder if you could just take it today. Don't earn it. Don't try to be worthy of it. Could you just believe it and then receive that today and say, God, I'm willing to accept the love that you have for me. This is the gift he's giving us at Christmas. And it's for you. Why would you not take that gift? So in a moment, we're going to sing these words again. And maybe you can sing them in just recognition of what God has done for you. But maybe we need to sing it as, a, as an acceptance. That the love that God has for us is greater than we've ever imagined. And somehow, just incredibly so, it's for us. And so, Lord, thank you. Just, I thank you that you love us more than we ever thought you did. Even for those of us who already believe that, Lord, it's so much beyond what we could ask or imagine even now. It's greater. It's overwhelming. It's incredible. And so, Father, could you help us to experience that even more? Lord, I don't know what's holding people back today. I don't know if it's pride. I don't know if it's shame. I don't know if it's fear. I don't know if it's distraction. I don't know if it's past hurt. I don't know what it is. I just know you're greater than all those things. And you're better than all those things. And so, Father, could you meet each and every one of us right here in this moment, right now, and help us simply to open our hearts and say, I receive your agape, overwhelming, incredible love for me. Father, thank you for that. Thank you for giving us a love we don't deserve. God, as we walk through Christmas, help us to experience you even more. In your name we pray.